Welcome to another edition of Mormon Land. I'm managing editor Dave Noyce. I oversee our faith coverage, and I'm joined again by senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Dave. A new documentary, which we've both seen, uh, called Murder Among the Mormons, has become a big hit this month on Netflix. It recounts the 1980s story of document forger Mark Hoffman, who tried to upset the traditional historical narrative regarding the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by producing fake artifacts. When he got tangled up by his own financial double dealing, Hoffman attempted to cover up his counterfeiting by setting off separate bombs that killed one of his clients, Steve Christensen, and Kathy Sheets, the wife of Christensen's former business partner. He then injured himself in a third bombing. The three-part series offers not only a riveting whodunit dissection of deadly crimes, but also a fascinating exploration of Mormon history and culture of the times. Here to talk about it is Jared Hess, one of the co-directors. He joins us today via Zoom today from Sugar House. Jared, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. We're so glad to have you. So what have been the reactions to the documentary so far? And have you been surprised by any of them? Um, it's, you know, this is a story that that the rest of the world outside of Utah just does not know. I mean, it was such an isolated regional thing that occurred in 1985. So, I mean, look, we live in Utah. We live and breathe Mormon culture, Utah culture, we all know it, but the rest of the world does not at all. And, and so this, I think, uh, is just a true crime saga and everything as it relates to Mormonism, LDS culture, just the whole world of Utah at that time is so foreign to them. Um, and, and especially, you know, just the story of, of Mark Kaufman, that we were able to withhold a lot of information in our storytelling to kind of keep it riveting. And, and weirdly enough, I mean, you, you know, to me, I think the biggest surprise is most people outside of Utah and the rest of the world don't know that Mark Hoffman was the bomber or a forger until the end of episode two, which is shocking to me. I mean, we try to structure it in a way where, where again, you know, that there's lots of different things that they, that the investigators were chasing and looking into at the time. And, and, um, but to me, that's the most surprising thing, just because it's so familiar to all of us. I wondered about that, you know, because when you watch the first episode, you don't know, he seems like a victim, you know, another victim. And, and I'm thinking, but some of us of that era who've lived here obviously know how this all turns out. But I was surprised by people in Utah of a younger generation who knew nothing about it. So uh, why did you end up doing this? Did you, did you know beforehand? Oh, a lot of people aren't know about this. Let's do it. Or why did you pick this, this story to tell? You know, I mean, gosh, in, in my early twenties, I just became really, uh, obsessed with early Mormon history and anything relating to it. And this story is just, you know, as far as like modern LDS history is just so incredible. I mean, there's nothing, anything out in the world that's like it. I mean, just as it relates to the crimes and, and Hoffman, obviously trying to undermine the, you know, the founding stories and narratives of, of Mormonism. I mean, it's, it's just super compelling. And, and over the years, you know, I've gotten to know Kurt Bench, who's one of the people that ran Desert Books, like rare and used a department who had direct dealings with, with Mark. And so I've gone to lunch with Kurt and the stories he would tell me just blew my mind. I mean, I, 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 you know, it was just so riveting and, and just the level of deception that occurred for six years, you know, that, that was kind of the run that Mark had. And, um, 
it's yeah, it's just, it's baffling. So how did you uh, connect with your co director, Tyler? Tyler. Yeah. So Tyler, he had actually started, uh, you know, to, you know, interviewing some of the subjects and getting to know him. And I've known Tyler for years. Like I actually worked as a camera assistant um, when I was in at BYU on a music video that he was directing. Um, and, and so I've known Tyler, you know, for a long time and um, he, you know, seriously got to work on it. And, and it's funny, Doug Fabrizio actually had recommended uh, a Hoffman book to Tyler. And he was like, man, Tyler, this should be your next documentary. And Tyler's such an accomplished, amazing documentary filmmaker. And um, through a common friend that Tyler and I have, somebody told Tyler, hey, Jared has been obsessed about this you know, story for years as well. And so we got lunch. And by the end of the lunch, it was like, hey, let's let's collaborate. Let's do it together. And did you decide on a particular approach? Yeah, I mean, look, there's so many different ways. It's interesting. There are so many books that have been written on it and not so many, but under 10, (laughs) but, you know, and and there's been smaller ones like George Throckmorton wrote a book on his experience. Um, So a lot of the players have done kind of smaller self-published things. And then there were, you know, there were bigger ones like the Salamander or Victims that uh, Richard Turley wrote or um, uh, A Gathering of Saints. Like, you know, there's, there's been a lot of different books really well researched uh and and documented so there's but but all of them have kind of a different approach and perspective and for us the most important thing especially as we began to have lunch with people that lived through it that became the most important part of our storytelling is let the people who were close to mark you know whether it was his ex-wife Dory Olds or you know Brent Metcalf or Shannon Flynn or Kurt Bench or Al Russ it's like let those people tell what they were experiencing at the time and so we wanted to tell the story from the perspective of of the people that were close to him and and had lived through this whole saga so how on earth did you get access to crime photos to family photos to video yeah, yeah. You know, of that news conference that I was attend, I attended back. Yeah, then. yeah. So, so a lot of the material, um, you know, weirdly enough, you know, we were dealing with people who were document collectors, historians, and I think as they were living through this, knew that it was significant and important what they were experiencing. So, people had VHS tapes that they would record of all the news shows when it would happen. Um, you know, we had w- one of the investigators, uh, uh, Farnsworth, uh, his widow, we had got Tyler had gotten a hold of her, and we were in the middle of shooting our, um, you know, our, our recreation sequences in June. And Tyler was like, Oh my goodness. I, you know, I just got contacted by detective Farnsworth's widow. She has boxes of stuff that they use. And there were tons of crime scene photos that they had for that preliminary hearing for Mark that we'd never seen before. And then also in these boxes were the actual answering machine tapes of Steve Christensen of the day of the bombing. And we couldn't, and, and weirdly enough, it was the day that we were shooting that, that reenactment scene where the bomb is being delivered and Steve comes and picks it up. And I remember Tyler going, come here and brought me into, into this room. And he's like, listen to this. And it just gave us the chills. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and that stuff that had never been heard before. It's one thing to read about these things in a book, but it's another, I think to see the news archival, 
to see the interviews with people and see, hear and see the emotion of what they were going through, which I think is, is you know, just shine a new kind of light and perspective on, on the story. Did you have any squeamishness about using those photos of Steve's dead body? We, we did, we did. And we talked a lot about it and, and there were ones obviously that were far more explicit and that, that we chose not to use, um, for obvious reasons. But, you know, I think with a story like this to avoid, I guess the evil that was inherent in Mar, you know, we, 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 we couldn't avoid it. We didn't, we wanted, you know, you, you have to experience that here was like a father. This is an innocent person that was just, you know, beloved in the community as was Kathy Sheets. And, you know, to really kind of put a perspective in, in, you know, just having a scope of the destruction and, and the heartlessness that, that Mark created, I think was really important. And it seems like we would not be honoring that if we had chosen not to, to kind of depict it in some way or another. It's such a brutal crime. I mean, there's ways to kill and then there's terrible, terrible ways to kill. Yeah, it's, it it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. There are a lot of haunting things in it in some respects. And, and the home videos, the home movies, I guess, of Mark interacting with his kids and family. But also, uh, and you reference like the, the voice recording with Steve Christensen, like one caller saying, you're a hard guy to get a hold of and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also the interviews that I guess maybe were with law enforcement or the Board of Pardons after he pleaded, after Mark Hoffman pleaded to right. the crime as part of the plea deal, he was going to talk about it. It was really haunting to hear him ask questions like he felt remorse. And most people would say you would think would just say absolutely and respond with emotion. And he would like stammer. Uh, uh, And I think at one point he even said something like, um, well, my victims, the victims aren't feeling any pain now. Things like that. I'm wondering what went through your head as you heard those kinds of things. No, it was it was chilling. I mean, and and, and again, to hear from his own mouth how he felt about the murders he'd committed and just how it didn't really matter to him. It's like I mean, it's it's un, and and the fact that he like you said, it's like, do you have remorse? And he stammers, like, yes. like, you know, it's like you, I mean, again, it's one thing to read it, but then to hear it from the guy that did it is a completely different thing. Um, and it, and it was chilling and it was heartless. He was callous. He seemed to have no remorse. Um, and you know, yeah. And this is from a, a body that wants to hear that. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, right. You think he would have wants to hear people. remorse, you know, if nothing else. But right. right. Yeah. Wouldn't even fake that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so what in your interviews? I mean, you said you had done a lot of research. What surprised you? Were there were there moments where you thought, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, it happened all the time. And I, and I think, I don't think Tyler and I were prepared for just the level of emotion and heartache that still is a big part of, of these people's lives. Um, you know, and, and when a lot of them hadn't spoken about this for 35 years and it, and it was tough and it took, 
a long time to kind of earn their trust. Like, Hey, we, we just want you to be able to share what happened. Like there's no ax to grind either way. We just want to like, let you tell your story. And so like Al Russ, for instance, I think he was, it was really hard for me. He's 90 years old and just this salt of the earth guy. And as you see in episode three, like him saying that he told Mark Hoffman's dad to tell him that I forgive him. You're just like, Whoa, that's unbelievable. I mean, that that's a guy who was financially ruined, who had just total trust in Mark, considered him a son, you know, and was just betrayed by this guy. And, and anyway, so there, there, there were endless moments like that. And then you've got moments on the opposite end of the spectrum where we're interviewing Shannon Flynn, who's one of the most colorful personalities in, in the whole series. And we had moments with him where it just felt like, wait a minute were you an accomplice? <laughs> like what's going on? Like your body language is, seems so like guilty and suspicious here. And he, what, you know, he wasn't, he was fully exonerated, but it definitely, you know, there are moments where audiences watch it and they're like, wait a minute. He seems like not a good seem like that for sure. Yeah. 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 It did seem like, but he also was heartbroken. You know, it's like there was so much pain that he still lives with today. And so it's, it's nobody was immune to that. So Jared, after, after Hoffman successfully essentially duped document experts and, and the church um, with the Anthem transcript and the salamander letter, um, the, the documentary states that Hoffman, or at least implies that was plotting to get a big payoff in the millions with, with what our listeners refer would know as the last 116 pages of the original book of Mormon manuscript. What evidence is there about how far along he, he got to, to doing that con? Yeah. Yeah. So he, um, weirdly enough, Brent Ashworth, uh, one of the collectors that we interview in the film, he owns basically Mark's materials and notes that he was beginning to assemble to kind of figure out how he was going to write, uh, the last 116 pages and me, you know, being a screenwriter and you know, it was interesting to look, he's got, you know, these early rough outlines where Mark just kind of seems to be laying out what the story would be as it relates to Lehi. And there's really kind of loose ideas in there. Like one of them, it's like, you know, Lehi's gold mines and, you know, Lehi gets drunk at one point, you know, and I was just like, oh man, this is going to be bananas, but it was still going to kind of dig at things that are uncomfortable, I think, for Latter-day Saints. It, it felt like it was going to go there. But he also had note cards where he was, gosh, if he had the internet now, you'd have an algorithm or computer that could do it for you. But he was literally going through the Book of Mormon word by word and looking at patterns and just common phrases that, that are used so he could really do it in, in that voice. Yeah. I mean, it, I've, after all, if he came up with salamander for the Joseph Smith thing, who knows what he might have coming up with that. Right. 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 He even said he, he used salamander instead of a toad. Right. Because he needed to spice it up or something. To spice it up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was amazing to see in the when um, I think it's in the third part where you talk about the techniques mm -hmm. and how he really just he's like, oh, yeah, I have good penmanship or something. Like, right. Yeah. 116 pages of penmanship? I know. What? Yeah. That just seemed like such an audacious enterprise. But 
it would have set him up for life in terms of financial probably. Right. Yeah. 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 It totally would have. Totally I mean, you're just like, okay, dude, stay with the one page document. <laughs> yeah, right. Those are, you know, yeah. in some ways I've always felt like he got done in by his greed. If he had been more careful and slower, he might not have been caught. No, it's, it's very true. What do you say to those viewers who felt like it was too kind to the LDS church and those who thought it was too anti-Mormon? I just saw, I just saw one of those just yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. Like we, again, our whole goal was to tell this from the perspective of the people who lived through it. And, and, and also this was about Mark Hoffman and his crimes. And, you know, I think people that, you know, out of the church or, or, you know, in, in the ex-Mormon or post-Mormon community that, that were looking for like an expose. I just, the, the weird thing is that we were trying to tell a story that for, for a global audience, I mean, this is going to be on Netflix and, you know, Netflix, when their stuff comes out, it doesn't just drop in the United States, but it premieres throughout the world in like over 190 countries or something. Um, and so we, we really had to structure our storytelling um, from that perspective, but we were taking the cues from the investigation, from what was going on, you know, early in his career. And then, you know, that, that was kind of the momentum and the pace and the tone from which we were telling the story. Right. And, and so again, people that wanted an expose, we were not out to make an expose at all. <laughs> like that's not, I mean, to me, weirdly enough, it's like everywhere outside of Utah or outside of Mormonism already doesn't believe in the church. Like it's a fiction to them, right? The whole story of Joseph Smith, everything. So it's like, I don't know who this is appealing to. You know what I mean? So that's just not, that's not the story we were telling. I mean, that would be like if I tried to make an expose on Hogwarts, you know, like I'm going to expose the corruption and sorcery. Everybody already believed that it's fiction, right? It's like, you're not, I mean, so anyway, this, again, this was a story about Mark Hoffman and his crimes and his deception. So the church is definitely one of the players in that. And, um, but they almost exist as more of a backdrop to the story. It's like, you have to understand the tenets of Mormonism and, you know, especially the story of Joseph Smith and the angel Moroni to be able to comprehend what a disruption, first of all, how sacred that story is to the faith. I mean, that's what Mormon missionaries teach in their first you know, lesson. Um, and then to see how, wow, this like a cult story about a salamander completely disrupting that and turning that story on its head and causing everyone to kind of, how, how do we spin this? How do we create a, or find a historical contents that context that makes sense out of it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's, uh, people will always kind of project, you know, I think their own agenda and what they want out of a story and especially the handful of people that, that know what occurred, but, and, and something else that's funny, like we had early edits of this clear back in July and August, and we test screened them with uh, close colleagues, friends and family, you know, not, not, not family, but, but people in the industry that knew nothing about Utah, knew nothing about Mormonism. 
just so we could be like, okay, are they, are they, do they know enough so they can understand why the salamander letter was a big deal. And then, but then we also had other things like, you know, I really wanted to get the story in of like Gerald and Sandra Tanner, um, you know, who Gerald Tanner was like, everyone was saying the salamander letters legit. The salamander letters seems authentic. He looked at it and said, this feels too pat. Like this doesn't feel right, which weirdly enough for him and his wife, Sandra Tanner, who have lighthouse ministries and have always been critics of the LDS church. This totally would have been awesome for them to be able to use to further their cause. But he was like, it's too good to be true. And there were stories like that. And then there were, you know, I think um, people that know the story well, just, you know, there's there's a whole slew of things. You know, when uh, uh, President Oaks, I guess, had written something about trying to understand the Salamander letter. Um, Weirdly enough, stories like that that kind of drifted away from the Hoffman story and the momentum of the investigation, people were so bored with outside of Utah, right? They're like, this seems boring. Why are we hanging out with these old dudes? We want to get back on track and find out who did it. And so to the rest of the world, those things were just incredibly boring. I mean, it was too inside baseball, right? Um, and they're interesting to us because we have a context of it all. But to the rest of the world, it just it didn't wasn't exciting. <laughs> so, which I totally get, and and we needed to kind of get that feedback. But it really helped shape. Again, you just really have to follow the narrative and what's working. Have you heard from any any? Did you have a viewing for any general authorities or anything? No, we did not. Um, yeah, no. Uh, have you heard from any yeah. of them? No, I haven't heard from any of them. Look, I've I've heard. You know, it's funny. Like, uh, heard from you know, like my stake president, who was one of the he was one of the paper boys that de- delivered the newspaper to Kathy Sheets' home the morning morning. Oh wow, got interrogated, and I didn't know any of this. It's like the once people start talking about it, there's always like a connection to it in the community. He was like, yeah, I got, you know, I identified Mark Hoffman's Toyota minivan and he was like 12 or 13 at the time, um, <laughs> which is just crazy. So yeah, no, I've not heard any direct response of anything, but uh, other than just, you know, people that I know. Um, yeah. So everyone saw it, you know, when it came out. So did you interview some people that didn't make it into the documentary? We did. I mean, we interviewed close to 30 people um, and a lot of them were experts, you know, uh, on document collecting, um, you know, and, you know, I mean, they kind of fell into two categories, either like historians or scholars. Like we interviewed D. Michael Quinn, who was amazing, by the way. Um, and people that just know this story so well. And then back east and a number of, of document experts. Um, and ultimately we were like, gosh, the again, the focus became let's be with the people who were living with the story and living through it. And so everyone else that kind of exists in a more commentary space uh, just didn't make the cut. But it, but it was incredible. You know, their interviews really informed uh, many aspects of the story. So we're, we're grateful for their participation. So any regrets, anything you wish you would have included? Man, you know, uh, there are, 
it's just like an endless amount of material. You know, we've got like a limited amount of real estate. We initially had pitched this as a six part series, um, six one hour episodes. And there was more, I mean, even if we had done that, you, we probably would have been, gosh, we probably could have done 12 episodes because here you've got, it wasn't just one or two crimes that happened, but Mark Hoffman had like a six year run of just where every transaction was a big crime and had endless amounts of stories attached to it. And so um, to be able to, you know, for me, it's like, man, I would have loved to, and we talked, Tyler and I talked about this ad nauseum, but you know, his pattern of, Oh, here's a document that totally affirms the belief in the church. And then here's one that's like a skeleton in the closet. That's maybe going to make people squeamish. Ooh, here's a, here's one that totally, you know, feels like it affirms the faith. That pattern was so fascinating hmm. uh, that, that, that he would create. And again, he played into what people wanted and he played into what they were afraid of and he exploited that. And what would sell, I guess too, right? What would sell. And yeah. those are the sensational yeah. things that would sell. Yeah. Like, Anything boring wouldn't sell, but something yeah. that felt scandalous would sell or something that felt like, wow, this is like the rookie card, you know, of Mormonism, which is, you know, like the Lucy Max Smith letter, the first document of Joseph Smith's mom talking about his early years. It's like, whoa, we got to have that, you know, and right. Brent, Mac, or not, uh, Brent Asherth was the one to buy that. Yeah. You know, in recent years, the, the church has gone to great lengths to put forward a more straightforward telling of, of its own beginnings, you know, uh, things like the Joseph Smith papers project, uh, which has been, you know, uh, you know, earth shaking in some respects in, in scholarship and the multi-volume history titled saints that the churches, uh, is publishing. So, 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 so much more is known now about, for instance, 19th century dabbling in folk magic by Joseph Smith and others. It's almost like the tells of salamanders might not have the same shocking effect today. But what are your views sure. on what are your views on that? No, no, I, I think you're spot on, especially as it relates to like the use of the seer stone with the translation and the hat and all that stuff. I mean, it's just so out there now with with the internet that I think had a salamander letter popped up now, it would have been like, so what? Um, but back then when I think the narrative was a little more controlled, um, as it relates to like a faith promoting history, mm -hmm. I think that's, it was kind of the perfect storm, right? Like the, the membership at large didn't know about those kind of activities or, or, you know, anything that, that just felt, <laughs> you know, a more naturalistic view of history. So, yeah. Where'd you so, get those goofy, um, <laughs> videos from the church self-promotion man go to any ward library and you'll find them how uh, old was that one <laughs> so you know it's funny there's actually a really great website called hard to find mormon videos it's not a website oh. it's a youtube channel they somebody just went to their ward library yes. and pulled up everything but that one it, it was a bunch of pieces of different ones like there was the one of the of moroni um appearing to joseph and then there's like a different one of like the plates being you know mm -hmm. being pulled out of the ground yeah so it was a couple of different ones but i think that they were like 1970s 60s 80s yeah 
Wow. It's great. I love, I love all those ones, man. They're, they're, they're acting at top notch. <laughs> so, so Jared, as, as we, as we conclude, uh, I'm going to ask you to put your sage hat on. <laughs> are there, are there any lessons that church members or church leaders could take from the whole Hoffman saga? Yeah, I think it, it's like, it's okay to be embarrassed and have a moment <laughs> failure. Like I think there's such a weird emphasis in Mormonism on perfection. And it, to me, it's like, it's, it, it should be about love and forgiveness. It's like the wrong thing to obsess about. And, and I think people, this has always been an uncomfortable story for people because they feel like these leaders that uh, to them, they feel like are infallible on some level or have a closer connection to God. And it's uncomfortable to think that, wow, if they have that connection, how are they duped? And the reality is that we're all human beings. We're all susceptible to deception. Nobody is immune to it. And we just have to take a close, hard look at the narratives that we choose to believe in life. I mean, it, beyond Mormonism, you know, um, and it's, it's like, yeah, we just have to be careful and do a deep dive and do our research and, and not be afraid, you know? And so I think, I think this story for a long time, I think within the community has existed as like, Oh, it's something people don't like to talk about, but it's good to just kind of confront your fears and become empowered by, by the truth and kind of knowing what went down. So well, the name of the documentary, again, is Murder Among the Mormons. Jared Hess, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, guys. Be well. Stay safe, okay? Appreciate it. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Chris Samuels. We remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up. And we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land. Mormonland.